This will be good. Number 10, in the five churches I've faithfully served over the last two years. That's not a good way to start. Number nine, my extensive counseling of church members has produced a rich source of illustrations for my sermons. No. Number eight, I have the stamina to preach hour-long sermons. Number seven, my personality type has provided me ample opportunity to develop a wide range of conflict resolution skills. Number six, I've been told every sermon I preach is better than the next. Yeah, yeah. Number five is my favorite. With a suspended driver's license, a car allowance won't be necessary. (laughs) Pastor doesn't want that on his resume. Number four, hobbies include pit bulls and automatic weapons. Number three, I require Sundays off. Number two, I have learned to cope with financial crisis at every church I've served. And then the number one thing you don't want on your resume, I have five jokes that are so funny, I tell them over and over and over. Not what you want on a resume. Well, I mentioned pastoral resumes because there were critics of Paul in the church at Corinth who were questioning the apostle's resume or his lack of one. His detractors were using this to cast doubt on his credibility. And chapter 3 opens with Paul's reluctant defense. He writes, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You see, a common practice in the early days of Christianity was for traveling preachers to carry letters of commendation or referrals from their home church. Even today, when requests come in for folks who are asking for support or who want to speak or sing at Calvary Chapel, they'll usually include references from other churches where they've ministered. It's standard protocol. It's a good way to validate the legitimacy of a person's ministry. In fact, Paul participated in this practice. In Romans 16, remember, he recommended Phoebe. 2 Corinthians 8, he endorsed Titus in his letter to Philemon. He commended Onesimus. But what Paul did for others, he saw no need to do for himself. At least not in Corinth. Why would he need letters when he started this church? Why would he need to present his resume when he led its first members to the Lord? Paul was Christianity's ground zero in Corinth. The existence of Christianity in this city alone validated Paul's ministry. In essence, Paul is saying to the believers in Corinth, I started your church. Through my preaching, many of you were saved. And now you want to see my ID? See, the Corinthians were asking for Paul's resume. But he says, you are my resume. He says, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. The false teachers who came to Corinth after Paul had departed had some impressive paperwork, but Paul insists that the Corinthians were his paperwork. See, here's the point. How do you know a pastor is called by God? A wall of diplomas and ordination certificates are just wallpaper. The proof is in the fruit of his ministry. Verse 3 
Clearly, you are an epistle that is a letter of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Paul was the pen that God had used to write on the hearts of the Corinthians. God's transforming spirit was the ink, and Christ was the author of their salvation. Put it all together, and Paul calls these Corinthian believers letters of Christ. You know, today we send text messages and emails. But when Paul wanted to communicate with people, he picked up a quill, pen, and a parchment. He literally inked his letters. Yet ink can smear and smudge and fade with time. Even when the ink is legible, the words can be lost or ignored or misinterpreted. And this is what happened with the old covenant that God had given to the Hebrews. See, God wrote his will on stone tablets. When he gave the Ten Commandments to Charlton, I mean to Moses, remember God chiseled his commands with his finger into those two pages of stone. In essence, Dr. God was saying to his patients, hey, take these two tablets and you'll feel better soon. Just a joke. The problem, though, is that the Jews ignored the prescription. There was nothing wrong with God's law. The issue wasn't what was written, but it was how it was written. Because it was an external document, the Hebrews could neglect or abandon or misunderstand God's law. Say a friend hands you directions to a new restaurant. He writes them down for you on a piece of paper. Just having that paper doesn't mean you're going to arrive. For you can lose those directions or misread them or spill a drink on them and smear the ink. But if I plug that address into your car's navigational system or into your phone, the GPS would prove a much more efficient means of getting you there than a piece of paper. And this is why under the new covenant, God writes his will in our hearts. Living under the law was like carrying around directions on a piece of paper, stone tablets, no less. They were external to the person. But when a person comes to faith in Jesus, God implants his will into their basic desires and instincts. His spirit becomes part of their spirit. He activates a spiritual GPS inside them. God gives us a new nature that keeps redirecting and recalibrating us into God's will. This is the miracle of the new covenant. And Paul holds it up in contrast to the old. With the new covenant, God has gone high tech, you might say. He's discarded papers and stone tablets. And in essence, he's planted a spiritual chip deep into our spirit. The old covenant involved following external directions while the new covenant creates onboard guidance, a person now inhabits us, the spirit of Jesus Christ. And thus, verse 4, and we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Again, the law depended too heavily on our ability to obey directions. You know, not everyone excels at reading and following what's written. 
In fact, the worst person on the planet at following directions happens to be Pastor Sandy. I have a terrible sense of direction. In fact, there's a saying in our house. If you want to get to heaven, ask Sandy. If you need to go anywhere else, you better ask Kathy. (laughs) I get lost coming to church. But success under the new covenant has nothing to do with our knack for following directions. Our sufficiency is from God, Paul says. Rather than hand us his law, a set of instructions to follow, God has planted his spirit in our hearts, his homing device inside of us. He writes his will and way in our hearts. Our job is to trust in him and in what he's done. Our sufficiency is from God. I love little Darth Vader. He, he thinks the force is with him. He tries to muster his own power here. And yet in the end, the only person with any power happens to be his dad. This is what the old covenant taught us, that we are insufficient. We have no power of our own. The power comes from our Father in heaven. He is our sufficiency. Well, it's God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Paul's ability to live out the new covenant is also his ability to pass it on. The Holy Spirit ministered in him and through him. For Paul adds in verse 6, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Assign someone a task without the strengths or skills to do it, and you're sentencing them to despair. This is why the letter kills. The law on stone tablets was impossible for the Jews to keep. Not because there was anything wrong with the law. The law was perfect, but the people trying to keep it were imperfect and thus unable. In the early and not so successful days of Chicago's NBA team, the Bulls had a coach named Johnny Kerr. Once before a game, Kerr entered the locker room and he said to his players, he tried to get them fired up. He said to one guy, you go out there and you act like the best scorer in the NBA. And then he said to another fellow, you pretend to be the best rebounder there's ever been. And then to the third player, you imagine yourself the best defender in basketball. Well, sadly, when the game was over, the Chicago Bulls had lost again by 17 points. Coach Kerr was so depressed. That's when one of his players encouraged him, don't worry, coach, just pretend we won. (laughs) But this happens to be what you end up when you're living under the law. You're trying to win a game that you just simply can't win. You're not good enough. You don't have the skill. 
And if you're not, if you're too proud to admit it, you end up just pretending. You play the hypocrite. This is what the Jews did, and this is why Paul says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, verse 7 recalls the initial giving of the old covenant. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Exodus 34 describes the face of Moses after he came down from the mountain with the law in his hands. His countenance was actually flush with the glory of God. I call it the divine shine or the mo glow. Moses looked like he'd stayed too long in a tanning booth. His face beamed. Moses radiated God's glory. God actually required Moses to cover his face with a veil. God's glory was off limit to the sinful Hebrews. But Paul tells us that the mo glow faded over time. And likewise, the glory of the old covenant, it too waned and fizzled. When God first gave the law, Mount Sinai was accompanied with thunder and lightning and shaking. It started out with a bang, but it ended up a dud. For the law of Moses was unable to make anyone righteous. Turns out the old covenant was transitory. It gave way to a better covenant. It's the grace of God and the work of His Spirit that make for a more glorious covenant. The divine shine passed, but the glory of God's grace lasts forever. Verse 10 tells us, For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Compared to the glory of the gospel of Christ, the glory of the law now looks dull and lackluster. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. The prominence and the splendor of the old covenant was fleeting. You could literally watch it in the face of Moses fade away. The glory fade, but the preeminence and significance of the new covenant lasts forever. He says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Under the old covenant, the Hebrews were unworthy to behold God's glory. Thus Moses hid his face behind a veil. And that veil became a symbol of the blindness that existed in the hearts of the Jews. To this day, they read the law. They understand its demands, but they're unable to obey. The law produced guilt, not confidence. It was a source of frustration rather than a sense of freedom. And verse 14 explains the effect this had on the Jews. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. The Old Covenant wasn't just irrelevant anymore. It created a spiritual impediment for Jewish hearts. See, whenever we study Old Testament passages like Isaiah 52 or Isaiah 53, 
passages that speak vividly of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You know Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. We read that and we ask ourselves, why don't the Jews recognize Jesus as their Messiah? It's so clear. And there are multiple reasons I could give, but the short answer is verse 14. Their minds were blinded. When Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. The problem is spiritual blindness. When the law is read, pride rises up. The thought is inflamed. Oh, we're good people. We're God's chosen. We can earn his favor. We can keep his law. Pride blocks them from God's grace. And they end up trying to do what they're unable to do and play the hypocrite. Under the law, there was a hopelessness. God seemed a million miles away. You'd sooner travel to the nearest star than get to God by your own efforts. You wanted to see God, but you were always butting your nose up against that veil. And that's why verse 16 should cause your heart to skip a beat. For Paul says, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The moment you turn to Jesus, the veil of separation vanishes. Instantly, you're invaded by God's presence. His glory fills your emptiness. The distance we felt evaporates through the work of Christ. The veil is removed. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, and under the new covenant, He continues in us the work that Jesus did for us. And thus, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom from the old covenant, from the law. And yet, here's what happens to many Christians. We believe that Jesus alone is sufficient to save us. And yet, after we're saved, we try to live the Christian life as if we were still under the law. As if we were still following the directions. Remember, you're not under the old covenant. You're under a new covenant. The directions have been plugged into your spirit. Thus, we need to live by faith. We need to lean into the Holy Spirit and His work in our hearts, not try to work it out on our own. Our sufficiency is from God. As Paul says in verse 17, where the Spirit of the Lord, where the Spirit of Jesus is at work transforming a heart, there's a liberty from the law. Rather than follow rules, we should rely on the Holy Spirit. Author and speaker Warren Wiersbe traveled extensively among churches all across North America. And he writes about what he observed. He says, there are gospel preaching churches that have legalistic tendencies and keep their members immature, guilty, and afraid. They spend a great deal of time dealing with the externals. They exalt standards and denounce sin, but they fail to magnify the Lord Jesus. Sad to say, in some New Testament churches, we have an Old Testament ministry. And here's the great tragedy with modern Christianity. New Testament churches with Old Testament ministries. We have a new covenant. Why are we living as if we're under the old? We emphasize rules, whereas New Testament Christianity is about faith in Jesus and the work of His Spirit in us. Verse 18 is a crucial truth. But we all, 
with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Here's what happens in a believing heart that's living under the new covenant. God strips away the veil. The light of God pours into a heart that once was dark. Not because we tried, or not because we earned it, or not because we proved our worth, but simply because of faith. His glory transforms us. We trust in Jesus, and his spirit makes us like him. The Greek word translated transformed is metamorphosis, which speaks of a radical change. When a rock crystallizes or when a caterpillar leaves its cocoon and flies off a butterfly, it's a metamorphosis. Under the old covenant, you conform and you produce your own righteousness. But under the new covenant, you're transformed by God's spirit. You radiate his righteousness. You become like Jesus. Paul said the glory of the old covenant faded and diminished. But notice the glory of the new covenant intensifies. We go from glory to glory, Paul says. The Christian life is a progression. And here's how the glow grows. We behold as in a mirror. You keep spending time with Jesus. You keep your focus and your attention Godward. Christianity is a miracle. We change, first in our spirit, then in our thoughts and in our attitudes, ultimately in our actions. And we do it not by trying, but by looking. We keep our face toward Jesus, and he works the changes in us. A mirror effect takes place. As we look to Jesus, we become like him. It's his spirit who does the work. We just supply the look. Oh, the power of a look. Where are you looking this morning? Have you fixed your eyes on Jesus? If you do, you'll never be the same. Well, chapter 4 begins. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. You know, Paul would agree being a pastor is a really tough job. In a recent LifeWay survey, 54% of pastors felt overwhelmed on a frequent basis. In another another place I read where 50% of pastors would leave the ministry if they had another way of making a living. But understand, being a pastor has always been a tough job. Imagine Paul. He faced persecution from without the church. He faced criticism from within. And yet he tells us here, We do not lose heart. How was Paul able to maintain his enthusiasm? Well, first he says it was his ministry. He says, I have this ministry. What a joy to preach a new covenant. And then second, he had received mercy. God had forgiven him much. How do you consider quitting when God has given you a glorious message and boundless mercy? And Paul writes of his ministry, he says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul handled God's word faithfully, not deceitfully. You know, some pastors are like painters who want to cut the paint by watering it down. 
That makes it spread easier and go further. But Paul doesn't water down the gospel so that it'll spread easier. No, Paul speaks truthfully and confidently. You know, I've never liked buying cars. I hate the experience, quite frankly. Often you're lied to and you're manipulated and you're strong-armed, and I don't like any of the above. So after visiting a few of the traditional dealerships, Kathy and I went to a car lot where they said they didn't dicker. The salesman told me, I'll never forget it, no pressure, this is a good car at a good price, and if you don't buy it, somebody else will. Well, I liked the guy so much, I bought a car from him that day. But this was Paul's approach in sharing the gospel. He didn't use shameful methods, craftiness and manipulation and deceit. Paul had confidence in his product. The gospel is the best deal ever offered. This is why you don't preach the gospel like you pitch used cars. You don't have to stretch or twist the truth. You don't have to bully anybody into buying. The gospel is such a good deal, it'll sell itself if you just present it clearly and plainly as possible. A godly pastor knows that he's not on commission. It's his job to be truthful with people and faithful to God. And then verse 3, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, should shine on them. Paul says the gospel is such a good idea. The only reason folks would reject it is that if they've been blinded by Satan, the God of this age. That's why before we preach, we need to pray. I love verse 5. It's so important. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Christian ministry should be void of any self-aggrandizement. Terms like promotional tours or image consultants or fan clubs have no place in the Christian vocabulary. We are bondservants of Jesus for Jesus' sake. Can you imagine a servant ever having a fan club? You can't promote yourself and magnify Jesus simultaneously. Spotlight only shines on one person at a time. And if it's on you, that means Jesus is the one being overlooked. He says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You break the darkness not by talking about yourself, but by shining God's light. It's the knowledge of Jesus that drives out the darkness. And then verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, at first glance, it's a strange metaphor, isn't it? Who puts their treasure in earthen vessels? Or who puts their treasure in clay pots? It's like serving steak and lobster on a paper plate. You don't do that. Or it's like pouring an expensive wine into a styrofoam cup. You expect jewels and gold in a treasure chest, not in a paper sack. But this is how God packages his valuables. 
He's taken the most expensive treasure on earth, the gospel, and he's put it in clay pots, you and me. We're the clay. We're coarse and uncouth pots. I guess you could say we're crack pots. That's what we are. Imagine, God places the gospel in ball jars. But why? Well, Paul gives us the explanation that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. God puts his spiritual treasure in cracked pots to hammer home the point that the power and the beauty and the wisdom is in the message, not in the messenger. D.L. Moody was the Billy Graham of his day. He was an evangelist that God chose to use in mighty ways. And yet Dwight Moody was uneducated. Neither did he have a pleasing appearance. His voice was nasally and high-pitched. Once a reporter was sent to analyze Moody's success, he wrote back. He said, I see nothing whatsoever in D.L. Moody to account for his marvelous work. And that is exactly the reason God chose him. For God puts his treasure in brown paper sacks. So everyone will know that the power is of God and not of us. And this is why Christian ministry should always be conducted in humility and in simplicity. No glitzy fanfare, no ostentatious displays or verbose introductions. Certainly we should strive for excellence in our ministries, but the issue is motive. There's a difference between expressing ourselves and impressing others. The question is, are you trying to get the message heard? Are you wanting to get the messenger seen? You know, whenever you take a drink, you want the taste of the liquid to be that of the contents, not the container. I have a cup in my office that's devoted to coffee. But every now and then, I'll pour some Coca-Cola into that cup. And guess what I end up with? Coffee-flavored Coca-Cola. See, the contents gets contaminated by the container. The drink gets tainted. And this is what we want to avoid whenever the gospel is shared. The message needs to be pure and untainted by the container. Folks should leave marveling at the message, not thinking about how cool or hip the messenger happens to be. Do we preach Jesus or do we promote ourselves? Well, the reason Paul endured hardship in his ministry is because he was enthralled by the message. Verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Everywhere Paul went, he got beat up, but he never gave up. His message motivated his ministry. And the same should be true of us. When you carry a glorious message, you carry on despite painful circumstances. Paul says in verse 10 that he's always carrying about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Paul was one of the walking wounded, but the cracks in his body became opportunities for the life of Jesus inside him to shine through. I heard the story of a young man 
who lost his leg due to cancer. He fell into a dark depression. A psychiatrist tried to help him, asked him one day to draw a picture of himself. The man drew an ugly, cracked, worthless vase. And yet over time, this young man started helping other cancer patients. And he soon discovered that he, in helping them, it was an encouragement to him. He could bring them hope, and that lifted his spirits, gave his life a new meaning. One day, the doctor showed him his old drawing, that cracked, broken vase. The young man, he took out a yellow crayon, and he started drawing colorful streamers flowing out of the cracks in that vase. And he said, where it's broken, this is now where the light comes through. And in essence, Paul is making the same statement. He's not discouraged by his hurt and his suffering. For he knows that where he's dying, that's where the light of Jesus can shine through for others to see. See, the gospel is the proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection. But for Paul, the gospel wasn't just an article of faith. It was a way of life. His life was a repetitive succession of deaths and resurrections. Paul would suffer. Then God would resurrect hope. His life was a reminder that God brings resurrection from death. Author Kent Hughes puts it, the cycle of Christ's experience becomes the pattern for Paul and all serious Christians. Affliction, death, resurrection. You you should remember this. The next time you suffer a death, the death of a friendship, or the death of a dream, or the death of a romance, or the death of a business, The death we experience may just be a setup for the resurrection of something new and better and truly miraculous that God wants to do. God still works in our lives in waves of death and resurrection. And then verse 13, and since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, and here Paul quotes from Psalm 116, we also believe and therefore speak knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Paul had given his body to God as a living sacrifice. He wasn't worried about its present welfare. His body would one day be resurrected, immortal, incorruptible, invincible. Death could not take anything from Paul that really mattered. He says, for all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Paul considered his sufferings worth it, knowing that through them God would be glorified. And then verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. Paul is going to end this chapter as it began. No matter how banged up he gets, he refuses to give up. And in these last three verses, Paul tells us how he overcame painful and discouraging circumstances. It was all about focus. Friends, did you hear that? It's all about our focus. Paul locked onto the inner man rather than the outer man. He lived for the eternal rather than the temporal. And he looked to the spiritual rather than the tangible. Notice first, Paul tells us, Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. 
Here Paul notes a potential source of great discouragement for us all. We're getting older. (laughs) That's a source of great discouragement. The other day I went to straighten out the wrinkles in my socks, and then I realized I wasn't wearing any socks. Hey, the outward man is perishing. All supermodels get wrinkled. Every bodybuilder will wither in the grave. While the outward man is deteriorating, the Holy Spirit, though, is invigorating the inner man. We wear down physically, but we can get stronger and stronger spiritually. Did you know God made our spirits rechargeable? We just need to plug into spiritual outlets like God's word and prayer and worship and fellowship. The key to overcoming discouragement is to stay focused on what God is doing in the inner man, not what's happening to the outer man. And then a second way that Paul tells us that we can beat the blahs is to focus on our eternal rewards, not our temporal troubles. He tells us in verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's amazing to me. Paul endured shipwrecks and stonings and imprisonments, but he calls them our light affliction. Doesn't sound light to me. How can that be? Well, here's the deal. You know that objects that are heavy on earth, when taken out into outer space, they become what? They become light. And this is what we can do with our troubles. We need to see them in light of eternity. Heaven's highs make today's burdens seem light as a feather. Heaven will be so heavy that your first nanosecond with Jesus will more than make up for a lifetime of tears and suffering on earth. Paul says our light affliction is just for a moment compared to eternity. This life is just a flash. I love verse 17. In it, God has promised us not just glory, but a weight of glory. Not just a weight of glory, but an eternal weight of glory. Not just an eternal weight of glory, but an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And there's even more. Not just an exceeding and eternal weight of glory, but a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And not just a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, but a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How's that for a bright future? This is why we should keep our eyes on heaven. Much is in store for us. And then finally, we stay hopeful by looking beyond the visible and tangible to spiritual things. Paul says it in verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The spiritual stuff of life are the realities that matter most. Love and grace and mercy and peace and integrity and fellowship. He says, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Material things lose their luster. In a few months, the brightest new fad starts to dim. But love and grace and peace and joy, the spirituals only grow in their brilliance. 
Focus on what you can see and you'll lose heart. But focus on what's below the surface and faith will grow. Recall when Elisha's servant heard that the king had dispatched men to take the prophet captive. He was frightened, but not Elisha. For the prophet had eyes of faith. He he saw more than his servant's eyes could see. Elijah prayed that God would open his servant's eyes and we're told, Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He saw that God had dispatched troops of his own. The angelic secret service had surrounded Elisha. Elisha could see what his servant couldn't see. Hey, we won't get discouraged if we keep our minds from focusing on the deterioration of our outer man and let God renew the inner person day by day. We won't get discouraged if we seek eternal rewards rather than temporal success. And we won't get discouraged if we gravitate toward the spiritual, not the visible. A Christian's priority should be the inward, not the outward. The eternal, not the temporal. And the spiritual, not the tangible. And there we have 2 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. Guess what? Between now and next week, you should read 2 Corinthians chapter.